Hey everyone, and welcome to the Year Was, the podcast all about today that gives you just enough information to effectively be that guy at the party, causing all your friends to question, hey, who invited you? Like, seriously, why are you here? I'm your host, Michael Montalvo, and for the next few minutes, we will swim through the river of time to try and find out what makes today truly unique. In this episode, we examine the events that occurred March 3rd. We've been talking about a lot of firsts lately, and I'm very disappointed that no one has posted a first comment yet, but it's okay. You still have time. Today, I decided that instead of talking about another first of another thing, we might instead learn about a last. A last what, you ask me? A lasting impression of the last great work of a composer. That's right, we're talking about music. So let's talk music. Specifically, opera. In all honesty, the only opera I know of is the Phantom of the Opera and the opera from the Bugs Bunny cartoon, What's Opera Doc, which, of course, uses music from Wagner. I may go watch that later. Another, perhaps more famous, portrayal of opera is by the cast of Hey Arnold in What's Opera Arnold. This, of course, is a parody of Carmen by George Bizet, or Bizet, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Honestly, cartoons showed us a lot of opera as kids. Even Animaniacs included elements of La Boheme and Carmen into their show. I could go on listing more examples, but I need to move on. George Bizet was born in Paris, France, October 25th, 1838, and he was born into a world of music. His Mother was an amateur pianist and his father taught singing and Bizet himself was so adept at music that he was admitted into the Paris Conservatory before he was even 10 years old. You might say that his motto in life was that he cantata stop the music. So he had his first operetta, Le Docteur Miracal, and that was performed in Paris when he was 19 and was generally well received, but his next work was not. His audience was not transfixed and they did not forget just to breathe because they were not taken by his symphony in C major. The year was 1875 and on this day, March 3rd, Georges Bizet premiered his final opera, Carmen. Carmen, for those who don't know, has become one of the most popular operas of all time. It has woven its way into pop culture and set in Seville. Tells the story of love, lust, betrayal, and murder. Honestly, if you haven't seen it or heard of it, you should check it out. I don't want to ruin it for you. Bizet was asked to write the opera for the Paris Opera Comique and wrote the show, which differed from their usual light and moralistic endeavors. The kind of shows where at the end the good and virtuous were victorious. Instead, he wrote a piece that highlighted the unheroic, the lower class. The show was actually delayed because of this, and it was thought that the murder and betrayal in the show would offend the audience. Some audience members loved it, but still reviews were negative, and Bizet was accused of plagiarism. Georges Bizet was an interesting musician. 
He only won one major award throughout his career, the Grand Prix de Rome in 1857, but during his life he was largely unrecognized. In fact, it was this obscurity and failures in compositions achieving notoriety, including Carmen, that led him to suffer from a severe depression. This, along with marital problems, caused him to have what many think was a heart attack, which resulted in his death June 3, 1875, at only 36 years old and only three months after his final opera, Carmen. I spoke to my brother, who is a composer about Bizet, music, and opera, so let's listen to that now. During this discussion, my microphone cut out and only my webcam mic picked up my audio, so it doesn't sound great. Whenever he would talk about his uh, process and everything, he said that he didn't want to do anything chic, and he had to have ideas before beginning a piece, which is different from his initial work when he was in Paris. This is when he was in Rome. Yeah, so the idea that you're talking about generally mm -hmm. as far as how composers start works is just, it, it's as varied as there are, I think, composers. And for Bizet, and, and I think we mentioned this a little while ago, but the pronunciation of his last name, it mm -hmm. depends on a sort of regionality. Apparently, like Americans sometimes say Bizet, and the British sometimes say Bizet. And uh, I think that I've heard that Bizet is more accurate. Yeah. I always just grew up with Bizet, and so that's kind of where... I'm landing, although you're probably gonna gonna get somebody that's very angrily correcting me yeah. in your in your comment section about how I am uh, butchering the pronunciation. I, I don't get comments, so oh. you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> okay, well, perfect. The idea that he wanted to start and have an idea before he started wasn't necessarily always a thing, and I think it's a lot more common now. Mm -hmm. But in sort of classical music literature or art music literature more specifically before this time period, a lot of times you would have composers who would write very, very formulaic works. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can talk about like, for instance, Haydn, you know, Haydn wrote over, over, I think uh, it was like, in, I think it was into the 110 teens numbers of symphonies that he wrote. And they were typically short and they were very formulaic and they followed these uh, these standards. And a lot of times they, you know, he, they would begin and they would just, you know, put down, you know, they would just start writing and sit at the piano and put musical ideas and, and, and everything just started from one musical idea and that begat the next one and so on and so forth. And so I could see how him wanting to always have an, an idea, a theme, some sort of, you know, thematic base from which to start would have been rather new and rather different for the time yeah so but we were talking about my process and uh well, it, well, real quick do you think that that's beneficial having that idea beforehand or are are you more well i know with your process you said it's a little bit different than that but um, well i think it depends on the music that you're writing and mm -hmm. i think that it can be beneficial if that's how you want to proceed uh, and sometimes, though, it can be limiting. And so in mm -hmm. some of the works that I've written, I've come up with these ideas and guiding principles by which I want to compose the piece. And sometimes I end up, I, I can, you know, if I'm not careful, will end up writing myself into a sort of into a corner yeah. where I don't really know how to proceed because I've created these 
ultimately completely arbitrary rules and systems by which I'm trying to compose the work that I'm working on. And so it, it, it can be helpful, but sometimes it's not necessary. And sometimes it can be, you know, actively in, inhibit like creative mm -hmm. processes. Okay. So let's uh, walk, walk me through your, your process from, I guess, getting, do you, do you do mainly commissioned pieces then, or are you kind of going out there and finding your own thing that you want to write? And then it's sort of, a, it's sort of a hybrid process right now. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm still fairly early in my career. And so I'm not to the point where I'm regularly getting commissions. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, if I'm only writing what I what I feel or what I imagine, then I'm going to have a hard time getting that music played. And so more often than not, the way that many of my works have started over the past few years is I connect with a performer or an ensemble who's interested in performing a work that I've written or who's interested in working with me to create a work uh, to, to put out there. Mm -hmm. And so the most recent piece that I finished was for Unaccompanied Mezzo-Soprano. And the way that one came about is I connected with a singer here in New Orleans who was going to be putting on a concert at the end of January. And I was able to talk with them and, and work with them in order mm -hmm. to put together this, this work and, and we, and it was a very collaborative process from beginning to end. And so it was not something that I, I never set out in my head being like, I have this, you know, it wasn't like, I just had this music bursting forth for me, this song for mezzo, uh, or mezzo soprano, I may have misspoke earlier, but for mezzo soprano. And, um, it's more along the lines of like, I had the opportunity to write for this performer. Yeah. And, I, and I had the opportunity to uh, give them something that would be performed. And, and and that's the way that a lot, most of my works have been written is that's, that's my starting point. And that's not the same for everybody. And it kind of depends on where you are in your career. A lot of times when you're in say a collegiate setting, there's, there's very few limitations on the instrumentation that you can use, uh, which is, you know, can be at a detriment because sometimes uh, it can be hard to find an ensemble that's willing to play a piece for say piano and banjo and electric accordion and you know uh japanese flute and i mean wow. you, you know mm. you get these really weird ensembles from collegiate composers because they have no limitations they have no checks on what they can do and then this can be a problem whenever they first like really enter into the the field is that you you then don't have anybody who can form these ensembles and about half of what I do is is communicating with ensembles saying like hey this is my existing rep are you interested in playing any of this are you interested in in performing anything that I have or listen to what I have and, and here's how what I've written in the past is similar to what you do or here's where it's similar to compositions that you've performed previously and you know does is that something that you would like to then work with me to create a composition specifically for your ensemble or for you as a performer so because this episode is, is kind of talking about George uh, Bizet in in opera i guess in general what what's your opinion towards opera uh, i really like opera i think mm -hmm. that opera is uh it's a fantastic medium and i think it birthed a lot of really entertaining musical mediums as well for instance uh like I mean, musicals, you know, yeah. that basically, if you just keep going back down the line from, through, you know, operettas, back to opera, you know, it, there's, there's the lineage is where that comes from is, is very, is very standard where you have just basically a play set to music and even an operetta 
is a play that is, you know, sometimes you have spoken word, you know, and it's you know, where you incorporate songs and it's, it's just a very, very early version of the musical. And, uh, and I'm just generally, generally a very, very big fan. My, my own tastes tend to veer towards more contemporary literature. And so, but that being said, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to go and listen to, you know, La Boheme or to go and see a performance of, like we're talking about in this episode, Carmen. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun to go back and, and see these composers who at, you know, the height of the 19th century were, were just doing incredible work in the, in the field of opera. And it's, it's a lot of fun to go to these performances to watch and to, and to be entertained. And then to kind of put yourself back into maybe a little bit in that time period. I've always loved the fact that operas were, were never really meant to be serious events. Yeah. Uh, an opera, if you think about it, like we're talking late 1800s, the height of, you know, of the, of the romantic era in terms of musical composition. And this is a time period before like widespread electricity. And this is a time period before, um, the the idea of a concert house really you know like these symphony halls or opera houses and and what it was is these uh events would be somebody's entire social experience for sometimes like a month you know mm-hmm. you have these you'd have rich patrons who would live outside of the cities and they would spend all day getting ready and be you know getting into their finest gowns and clothing and they'd be looking for an event they'd be looking for an experience because you know if you're going to go get in a horse-drawn carriage and it's going to take you three hours to go 15 miles or whatever it was you know uh you're you're not going to want to go watch you know an hour's worth of music and then be done and go okay i guess that's it i guess i'm done so these would be you know big lavish affairs and opera in by almost by definition it was just a very extravagant form of art and then the performances themselves were, were just very, they were wild. They were raucous. Mm-hmm. You know, the floor of the opera house almost never had seats and it was just standing room only. And uh, this is kind of where the idea of like the orchestra, you know, quote unquote pit came yeah. from is this, this floor that people who wanted cheap seats to the operas who couldn't afford a box could come in. But I mean, you know, people would be drinking, people would be eating, people would be talking, you know, there was not this idea of like, oh, well, the opera's starting, I should be quiet and I should yeah. watch reverently. And people were, you know, out there and just having a great time. And it wasn't uncommon for uh, audience members to like pause performances to like stop, you know, insist that performers repeat songs or, you know, if they really liked a selection they would oftentimes insist that the performer repeat it, sometimes multiple times. It was not uncommon for a audience to insist that famous performers substitute uh, songs from the actual opera that was being performed mm-hmm. for other things that they've done well. And so if you knew that there was a particular singer who sang you know, a piece from one opera at a very, very, very high level and very excited to see them perform that, but you're going to see them in another opera, it wasn't uncommon for like them just to say like, no, 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 we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear what was written. We don't want to yeah. hear what you re- rehearsed. We want to hear you sing this other song that we know and we love. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they were these crazy affairs. And so whenever I go to operas nowadays, I also, I always want to try and, or I always try to keep that in mind and keep that sort of 
mindset. I'm not, not going to go to an opera and hoot and holler and I'm not yeah. taking the cocktails out on the floor. You know, I'll mm. keep them in the lobby. But at the same time, it's it's always, I think that if I approach it in that manner, I always have a lot more fun than necessarily this event where you're go and, you know, you're supposed to sit on your hands and be very quiet and, and respectful. And, and mm. I never really liked that idea of musical performance where you weren't allowed to See, that, that surprises me hearing that about opera and everything. It, it sounds a lot like what you would have kind of expected or seen or, or really what they say happened with like the Globe Theater during Shakespeare's time where you have just your, your cheaper seats right up at the front and just people that are just standing around just to, to see the show and everything. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about that with opera because it, it, everything kind of looking at it and from growing up and from seeing everything, it's, it's always kind of a, a serious formal event. It's always felt very stuffy, you know? uh, But when you think about it, going to the movies today is a Mm -hmm. more formal event than going to the opera was in the 1800s. That shocks me. Honestly, (laughs) I just never really thought of it like that. Yeah, absolutely. Do you take any inspiration from composers like Bizet or or some of the other ones that were creating these operas or or this type of music um, with the stuff that you write now? Well, I think that a lot of what I look to for direct inspiration mm-hmm. is just it's it's all built upon the the legacy that's been built or that that is that existed throughout all that time. The yeah. the composers that I specifically look to for inspiration are more recent. They tend to have written music in the in the last fifty years or so. Um, but of course, it's always all built upon that. And you know, I I certainly have favorites from that time period. And whether we're talking about uh, operas and, and Lucia de Lamamore is one of my favorite romantic operas. Or if we're going to talk about Bizet, you know, it's just, it, you know, we can talk about with Carmen. And I, that's always had a, had a special place in, in my, you know, sort of musical listening. Because uh, one, of the, one of the things that I did when I was younger was March Drum Corps. And we had an entire show that was based upon that idea of Bizet, uh, that, that opera and that story. Oh, really? Like, yeah, kind of tied in with, you know, tied yeah. in the elements of Carmen and kind of fused it with a little bit of, of Bernstein's West Side Story. And so that's always had always had an interesting spot in sort of like my own musical tastes and, and listening. So Yeah. You know, growing up and everything, I, I never really put that connection with opera and, and like musicals and, you know, musical theater and stuff like that together because it always seemed like there was that difference where the theater was more fun, more energetic thing. And kind of going back to like what we were saying, just opera seeming more stuffy. But, you know, I, I see, I get with that, where you're coming from with all of that. I think for most of my opera experience that I can just say, you know, that's opera. And I don't even know if you count it as opera, but like Phantom of the Opera would be one thing that definitely comes to mind with opera. And then, you know, just being exposed with like the, the Looney Tunes, the Merry Melodies with Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd doing all of that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember this, but... Uh, hey Arnold did an episode where they recreated Carmen just all with the the kids from the show. I don't remember the Hey Arnold episode, but mm-hmm. uh, I I very clearly remember all of the Looney Tunes opera segments, and and I remember um, the the very famous. Or I think the one that stands out the most to me is the is the Barbara Seville with with Bugs Bunny. Yeah. You know, kind of given Elmer Fudd the, the shave on, on stage. Um, but they also did a really extended sequence for some of Wagner's works in the ring cycle. Yeah. I think 
you know, the, the whole Ride of the Valkyries kill the wabbit, you know? And so, and then like Phantom of the Opera is definitely, I think it's more in the musical, uh, musical styling. But to me, musicals have always just felt like an updated operetta. An operetta was a comedic opera and it was partially spoken and partially sung. And basically the, the, the idea behind uh, opera is there's two basic types of singing in opera. There's uh, aria, which is lyrical, you know, uh, long melodic songs. Mm-hmm. And then there's recitative, which is, which is very similar to speech and follows a lot of the same patterns of sort of spoken word. Yeah. And so, and then in very, very simplified, the, what's happening is over the evolution of time in an operetta, the recitative basically just gets, you drop the song part of it. And it just becomes so spoken word. And with operettas too, it started this tradition of the spoken part of the opera was actually done in the vernacular of the region it was performed, so in the local languages. Mm-hmm. And then the sung parts were done in the actual the written the written words. And so uh, Jana and I actually went and saw a an, a performance of an operetta called Deflator Mouse a few mm-hmm. years ago here in New Orleans. And that one was really interesting because they updated a lot of it. Uh, and especially, in, and it's very common with operettas that not only do they put the, the, the spoken word in the local language, but they also like update jokes. And so I remember there being a joke about Kofefi, you know, the, oh, the yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> in this operetta that we went and saw. And so like, to me, the, the musical has always been just, you know, the next stage of that operetta, you know, it's just the modern rendition of that operetta. Although now almost everything is all in the same language and, and uh, I think it's more scripted, obviously, you know, they, they do, they do it in more specific ways. I think my, my biggest exposure is the, the habanera. Yes, uh, absolutely. From Carmen and then the Hey Arnold episode. So with you being a composer and, and with you having studied music, how do, how do you view it? Uh, so it, it was a little bit weird for me because I actually didn't see Carmen performed until mm-hmm rather rather late after I was already out of my undergrad and after I had um you know sort of you know I was, I'd been aware of the music for a lot longer before yeah. actually seeing mo- most of it performed and and you're right with the, the habanera is like obviously you know that is something that lots of people are familiar with even if they don't know it mm-hmm. just because uh, it's you know presence in pop culture and uh, the fact that it, it is it is one of those songs, it's like a lot of classical literature where there are these pieces of the canon that are just very, very common that you can start singing it and almost, you know, almost anybody on the street can sing along with you, but they may not necessarily know yeah. the, the history, they may not know the title, they may not know the composer and so on. And so I was, I was aware of it for a really long time, but I didn't actually see it formed in the full production, the full apparatic production for, uh, I want to say it was maybe, maybe 10 years ago. It wasn't, okay. it wasn't really that, that long ago in the grand scheme of things. And so, especially considering I'm talking, so like 2010, 2011, whereas, you know, I entered into college in 2002 is when I was studying music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird in the sense of there's something that was obviously a point of study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whenever I was in school and something that is very, you know, um, ubiquitous in pop culture, but it was, it was something that I didn't have a personal experience with for much longer than, than I was aware of it, I think. So. Yeah. 
That was our interview with Steven. If you want to learn more about him or the music that he does, you can visit him at stevenmontalvo.com or smontalvomusic on Instagram. On the website, you can find samples of some of the pieces that he's composed. But I want to take a minute here just to thank him for being on the show because it really added something special despite my Bane voice because of a microphone malfunction. That's going to do it for us today. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, give us a rate and a review. That helps me out and helps steer this in a direction that is hopefully good for all. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can find the Year Was audio version on your podcast app of choice. You can find me on social media and at YouTube at the Apple Cider Club. And as always, I want to thank the Tim Kreitz Band for our musical theme. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 